We're back. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Mainline Podcast on this beautiful Tuesday evening here in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, two out of the three guys are here tonight. Uh, I'm your host, Tyler Burton. Proud to be joined by Corbin Polson. Adam, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, Adam is getting married this weekend. So uh, he is actually in routes uh, right now up to Michigan to tie the knot. So just the two of us tonight, Corbin. Yeah, exciting time for Adam. Uh, you know, we typically joke when a guy misses, but uh, we got nothing this week. Happy for the guy, and uh, hope he uh, enjoys the week. But Adam, don't forget to edit the audio. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Send the. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure that uh, again. We do want to promise the listeners this will be edited and posted by Adam before he walks down the aisle. So, uh, Corbin, how was your weekend, man? A lot of sports going on right now. A lot of sports, a lot of game sevens, uh, two best words in sports, right? So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. between that and we had uh, put up our house here for sale on Thursday. We were under contract as of Sunday or Monday, excuse me. So it, uh, it was a whole weekend of not being allowed home, uh, which is great. So <laughs> uh, now the buying process begins, which I hear is even more difficult. So uh, all exciting things, but, you know, it's a lot. Yeah, Bree, uh, she posted her house for sale. It was it was about three weeks ago. She had three offers on it, less than twenty four hours. So it's yep. just it's stupid right now what the real estate market is. I, I've been trying to find a house for you know six or eight months, but I mean, I could sell mine right now and make some pretty good money on it. But there's nowhere to go. So right. uh, it's kind of you know double standard. But yeah, uh, obviously we do want to wish everybody headed up to Adam's wedding, especially the bride and groom, safe travels. Adam, love you, miss you, dude. Uh, but congratulations. Uh, yeah, big weekend down here in the uh, state of Oklahoma, man. PGA Championship kicking off on Thursday. I'm very, very excited. Uh, bought tickets. Yeah, I bought tickets about a year and a half ago. Um, nice. That's going to be kind of a uh, Father's Day uh, birthday present combo for my dad. So he and I are going to make the trek up to Tulsa on Saturday morning bright and early and check out some golf. And uh, But yeah, got that going on. Regionals right now in the state of Oklahoma for OU Men's Golf right here in Norman. Um Ember Western Conference, Eastern Conference Finals are starting. NBA lotteries tonight, dude. It, it, it almost it almost kind of feels like once you get into the offseason of college football, it just kind of drags on. But there's a lot of stuff going on right now to keep us uh, yeah. keep us updated. But Corbin, let's dive right into it. Let's start uh, on the diamond, and we'll start with things over at Marita Hines right now. Um, kind of some good, and as we kind of found out here just a little earlier today, um, some bad news regarding softball. Yeah, you lose to Oklahoma State in the Big 12 championship in extra innings. And uh, listen, it, it took them four times to beat you and it took extra innings to do it. I, I didn't mind the loss. It, it kind of brings more, uh, I guess, power to the Big 12, maybe on a national perspective, which I think will help, at least while we're still here. But at the same time, you kind of hope, okay, this whole Jordy Ball, dark cloud kind of hanging over the team right now. Nobody really knows what's going on. Well, you know, thanks to uh, the... Uh, Oklahoma breakdown with Teddy and Gabe. Uh, Patty Gasser announces a hairline fracture in the throwing arm of Jordy Ball, which is significant news to say the least. So uh, before we get into kind of the, the the breakdown of what's going to take place in Norman starting on Friday, Tyler, this is huge news. Do we feel less confident about what this team is capable of coming off of an Oklahoma State loss and now the Jordy Ball situation? I don't want to factor in the Oklahoma State loss in the Big 12 tournament championship too much. I mean, like you said, you've played this team four times. It's hard to beat a team three times, much less four. So, 
Um, but yeah, <clears throat> I'm going to say yes because I don't completely trust uh, our pitching staff. And you know, ultimately now that it sounds like Jordy is going to be out for an extended amount of time, hopefully if uh, if the rest of the team can take care of business, maybe she can rejoin us for the supers or hopefully even in the women's college world series. But uh, the pitching staff right now, uh, just la- lack of consistency uh, to be dominant. Uh, you know, Hope, Tr- Hope Trotwine has been very, very good as a starter, but when she's been asked to, you know, kind of come in on in relief, she's really struggled, especially with her command. Um, Nicole May has been kind of up and down all season long, and, you know, her last two outings, which both of them are against, were, were against a really, really good softball team up in Stillwater uh, against OSU, the best team that we've played this year. Um, they've gotten after her pretty good, especially in the early innings. So if Hope, if Hope and Nicole throw strikes and trust their defense behind them, the number one defense in college softball, I might add, um, I think they win that game on Saturday, but you can't walk batters against quality opponents like that and not expect it to kind of come back and bite you. So um, with Jordy, it's sounding like she's going to be out for an extended amount of time. Obviously, you know, our best wishes and, you know, thoughts and prayers go out to her. Um, this this is kind of a gut punch. You know, I think that with the way this team has been playing all season long, the way things were trending, um, I think that this team was possibly starting to be ha- – you could start to have the conversation, especially if this team goes on to win the national championship. This was possibly maybe a top two or three team of all time in collegiate softball. Now you lose your ace in the worst possible moment of the season as postseason play kicks off with regionals this weekend. Um, it's it's a gut punch, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, and it's it, you hate to say that there's kind of a window – for this program because the team's going to continue to replenish talent. But when you look at what this team is losing after this year, how quickly can they, they make that up? So this, this all of a sudden becomes, if they don't win the national championship, it becomes a what if year, you know, I mean, could this team have have, have been one of the greatest of all time? And, you know, now could they be bounced even potentially before the world series? If, you know, the bats don't come alive, but I thought something's been very interesting with this team as a whole kind of shifting away from Jordy is you saw it against uh, Oklahoma State in Game Three. You saw it against Iowa State, and you saw it against Oklahoma State again. There, there's opponents have figured out a may, maybe it's just a coincidence, but they figured out that if they continue to switch pitchers relatively frequently throughout the game, the bats don't come alive quite as much for the Sooners team. Yeah, and so that is a it, it, the combination of, of losing your ace pitcher. And then a team maybe figuring out a weakness for the bats, which are the heart of this team. You kind of just kind of have to hold on for a little bit here and hope that the bats can come alive regardless of who's pitching. Because let's be honest, I can get it. Oklahoma State's going to have a good pitching lineup, but a switch in Iowa State's pitching lineup shouldn't hold you to five runs. And so that there's there's some things here that I think all have been um, uncovered about this softball team as of late. Um, that isn't the right time to uncover them heading right into postseason play. Now that said, how much uh, pushback are they going to get in these regionals? I'm not quite sure. We'll dive into that. But Tyler, is that something you've seen too, as far as just like, hey, switch up the pitching as much as you possibly can against this team, and that gives you the best chance? I hadn't really thought about that, but I think you make a really good point. You know, I, I was at the the Thursday night game one um, for the Bedlam series here in Norman, and you know, Kelly Maxwell, one of the best pitchers in college softball for the Pokes, uh, you know, she. I think she's uh, she didn't give up a single run, maybe one hit throughout the first first time going through the lineup. But once OU, once that lineup turned over and OU was able to see her for a second, third time, they really got after. Her. So yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and you would think, you know, starting postseason this weekend, however long this stretch goes, you would think that other teams that are studying Oklahoma, they're going to take a page out of Oklahoma State's playbook and maybe try that strategy uh, because once Oklahoma gets the bats rolling. 
Um, I know the Jordy Ball is probably not going to be in the circle, but Hope Trotwine, Nicole May, they're still good enough to where if you can only allow three to four runs, if that if that lineup gets going, I mean, we're talking 10, 12, 15 runs, so that makes things a whole lot easier uh, on your pitching staff. Now, I, I will say this. I, I kind of like what Patty said in the postgame um, uh, after the Big 12 Tournament Championship, the lost OSU. You know, I liked what Patty talked about how, you know, we're playing the long game. We're not here to win a conference tournament. We already won the Big 12 regular season title. Uh, we're already, you know, the number one overall seed. Um Jordy Ball has thrown the most out of all three, or I guess you could even say five. We'll talk about the two other names that are probably going to have to be, uh, you know, at least mentioned because we might see him as postseason goes on. Jordy's thrown the most out of all three pitchers on this staff. She needed the rest, giving Hope, who comes over from North Texas, uh, the opportunity. She's never been in an atmosphere like that, playing at, you know, so- so- the softball stadium up in Oklahoma City, four or 5,000 fans. Uh, I, th- I like that uh, she was able to get that experience because, you know, Every atmosphere from now on is going to be big time. You know, national television, uh, sold out uh, stadiums. And Nicole May, while she struggled a little bit at times, her getting those innings I think was valuable. And we're going to need both of them to be, um, you know, on their A game starting this weekend because, you know, like we said, Corbin, I'm not sure how soon we're going to get Jordy back or if we're going to get her back at all. She did mention. Uh, in that brief little snippet that Gabe and Teddy put out on Twitter, that I think it was Jenny Finch that she mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, was able to play through something very, very similar to that. And, you know, she's obviously probably the most decorated and, you know, greatest collegiate softball pitcher of all time. She was able to go 32 and 0 and, you know, lead her team to a national championship. So um, I'm not sure if that's possible with Jordy. You know, no two injuries are the same. And, you know, she's a freshman right now. Do you want her to push it knowing that you're going to have her for three more years after mm-hmm. this? So it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a uh, t- tough thing that Patty – a tough situation that Patty finds herself in right now. The question has to be asked, did they throw Jordy too much? It has to be. Because I understand that the this coaching staff in particular under probably understood from the get go, Jordy yeah. has the most talent of this entire pitching pitching staff. But didn't have the experience to back the talent. And experience at some point will matter, regardless if right. that's regular season play, conference championship, and then obviously making your way into uh, the heavy postseason stuff. But she was pitched a lot, and she looked yeah. great ninety five percent of the time. But looking back, was she pitched too much? Her body had too much wear and tear. And that maybe is, has some association with this injury. It, it's it's interesting, you know, especially with her being a freshman. You know, once a newcomer comes on campus, coach, you know, you you think you know what you have in them. You know, you've recruited them, you've watched them in high school, you've seen, uh, you know, how they play the game. But how are they going to react? You know, once you're on that prime time level, the lights are on, packed house. You know, uh, everybody's good at this level, Division One softball, especially once you get to this part of the season. So. I, I can understand the thought process behind wanting to get her um, a, a large amount of innings, a large amount of experience, get her acclimated to playing at this level. But Corbin, a- after seeing what she did against Kentucky, Oklahoma State, and Texas, I mean, those are probably three of the top, you know, maybe 15 teams in college softball, and she handled all three of those performances uh, immaculately. I saw everything that I needed to out of her as yeah. in terms of her being able to handle the pressure, handle the bright lights. So. We, we don't necessarily know how this this injury kind of came about. I think Patty said that it was when she was fielding warm-ups. a ground ball mm-hmm. in warm-ups. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've got a buddy that, you know, he blew out his arm, had to have Tommy John surgery because he fielded a bunt uh, right. coming off of the mound and threw it sidearm. So you, we don't know how uh, the the injury was sustained, you know, but we can hope that uh, 
Oh, you can take care of business this weekend in the regionals. Um, sounds like they could have a tough matchup in the supers, and we'll see if uh, if medicine, time, and healing can can be on our side with her. Yeah, let's hop right into that. Uh, regionals this weekend in Norman. OU takes on Prairie View A&M to kick things off Friday at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. Uh, and then I, I think actually some decently tough matchups. You've got Texas mm-hmm. A&M and Minnesota both in this region. Uh, Texas A&M, I have not watched them uh, announce at all this year, but looking over their schedule feels very much like a Jekyll and Hyde type of team. They are 29 and 26 on the year. I, I want to note that saying they started off 11 and 0. So hasn't haven't necessarily been playing well down the stretch. You yeah. look at some strange losses, losing to Houston twice, losing to Weber State, but then some pretty good wins. You got a win over number 13 Florida, a win over number 20 Georgia, a win over number 22 LSU, and a win over number four Arkansas. Granted, they went on to lose all of those series, but then they go out and they they take two of three from number five Alabama. So on yeah. a single given day. It seems like this Texas A&M team can probably beat anybody. Do I have extreme confidence that they can beat the Sooners twice? Not very much. But you look over and count the other side. These two teams face off A&M versus Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota 26-24-1 on the year. Two close losses to Georgia to kick off the season. They lost to Oklahoma State by one. They've tied Texas in the game. But the Sooners have played this team early back in March, and the Sooners won 9-1. to um, So it, it, I would anticipate – and OU versus A&M. And if you've been watching OU softball for a while, this used to be the norm. Mm-hmm. Texas A&M coming up to Norman. They leave their cleats, you know, on the uh, the first or third baseline where maybe it's behind the plate. I forget whatever weird ritual they have. Uh, there are many, as we know. But, uh, but yeah, I think I, I still feel very confident this team comes out of the, the regional unscathed. They, they should. They're more talented than any of these teams by far. But – AM at least has the track record of some significant wins throughout the season mm-hmm. that, that have to give you a little bit of pause. Yeah, you see the 29 and 26 record for Texas AM, but then you also have to figure out, you know, which conference they're playing in. And, you know, SEC collectively as a whole, that's the best softball conference in America. So that 6 and 18 record that they do have in the SEC is a little bit explainable. You do have to, like you said, Corbin, you, you talk about the wins that they've got, you know, uh, wins over multiple top 25 teams, taking two out of three against number five Alabama. Texas AM, if, if you're not on, if you're not, on your A game, Texas A&M is a scrappy enough group to where they can beat you. So um, we, we've talked about it all season long. I don't see a team out there that can beat OU two times out of three. That maybe changes a little bit now that you've lost your ace uh, and you're going to have to rely on your second and third option. But, no, I, I'm in a complete agreement with you. OU take care of business um, on Friday against Prairie View A&M. That should set yourself up nicely. I think you are looking to probably have to beat Texas A&M twice. Uh, in this regional uh, upcoming this weekend, but we'll uh, we'll see what the pitching staff can do. And like I said earlier, if if the lineup is awake and the bats are if the girls are swinging the bats fine, that makes your pitching staff uh, make it makes them you know kind of kind of breathe or exhale. You know the yeah. the, the pressure is a lot less. One thousand percent. And if the Sooners, uh, you know, do move on to the Super Regionals, um, if they're talking about the highest seed, you're looking to play, uh, you know, number sixteen seed UCF, which is a pretty high scoring uh, team down there out of Florida. But but sneaky sneaky here, Michigan also in that regional, um, and Michigan has actually beaten UCF earlier this year, six to zero. If you want my gut opinion, Michigan's coming to Norman uh, next week, which is a juicy matchup uh, mm-hmm. as far as just kind of softball name brands. But Ty, let's take a quick look. We talked. We talk pitching, pitching, pitching. You've got Trotwine and May. You know it's going to be the one-two combo, and they will probably ride those two all the way until the season ends. I don't think anybody else. But big question we had in our group chat was, 
then who? Who's the who's the third pitcher of this group? And really, I think it comes down to Macy McAdoo, uh, who is a junior, uh, and Emmy Guthrie, who is a freshman. Neither have played this season. So I think unless there is a significant injury, uh, you know, knock on wood here, to a Trotwine, to a Nicole May, uh, I, I, I just can't imagine seeing either one of those in the circle unless it is just a sheer blowout early in a game and they're trying to save the, save the arms of those top two. Yeah, not to beat a dead horse, but yeah, you you talked about it perfectly. You know, if if you're Patty Gasso, what's the best formula for your team going into this weekend, especially kicking things off with Prairie View A and M? Uh, you know, put up 10, 12 runs. You know, get yourself out to a pretty comfortable lead. Allow yourself to not have to throw Hope or Nicole and uh, allow a Macy McAdoo or an Emmy Guthrie to get in there. If there's one place that you want to get them an experience, it's with the it's at home in front of your your crowd. Uh, with you know maybe a six seven eight run lead so yeah uh, it, it's a big one I still think that you've got to have three pitchers uh, in order to do it you know Oklahoma um, what we've seen over the past couple of years I now that Jordy Ball is it sounds like she's going to be out for probably the rest of the season hopefully fingers crossed that's not the case there's there's not a Paige Parker there's not a Paige Lowry you know there's not a G Juarez I think on this roster right now now one thing that I think should give Sooner fans a little bit of hope is. G. Juarez struggled towards the very end of the regular season last year, even during the regionals. And I think she was, I think she was even purposefully, I don't want to say bench is the right word, but they did not have the confidence in her early in the postseason play. Fast forward all the way to the Women's College World Series, she's the best pitcher in that tournament. So, the, uh, you know, Hope Trotwine, Nicole Maine, they, they've, you know, they've played all season long. They've got the experience now. Uh, we'll just see if they can peak at the right time now the postseason play is getting underway and. Um, it's, it's just crazy because like I said, this is one of the most talented and, you know, statistically speaking, this is one of the greatest softball teams of all time. And you just hate for them, uh, to not get the opportunity to finish this season. Like they played all year long, simply because their best pitcher, um, is, is out. Yeah. And I think the G Juarez reference is, is a great example because one, she was overcoming an injury and even when she was healthy, it took her time to kind of get back to her normal self. It took her almost a year to do so, yeah. which I think just goes to show you whether positively or negatively, the regular season means nothing now. It doesn't. Right. And yeah. so you look at somebody like a, uh, you know, Nicole May, who hasn't necessarily pitched great on paper. Great. But if you watch the games, hasn't necessarily been stellar performance. You can turn that page now and you can take over for the, the postseason play. You could have said the same thing about Jordy Ball. She could have crumbled when it came to postseason play. We'll have no idea, but that's just there's a dividing line between when conference championships are over and this really significant you'll lose a couple. You're gone your season's over, it yep. really kind of irons out, you know, the good from the great. So um, it'll be interesting to kind of see how, how it all plays out. Um, I know a lot of our listeners probably have questions. So do we, it's going to, it's going to be interesting, but I know right now, even though Adam is uh, not with us, he did go ahead and kindly post uh, you know, some pre, pre-recorded audio to address baseball who, well, at least up until last night uh, had a great weekend. Yeah, we're going to completely discard last night's performance. But yeah, uh, we do appreciate Adam for taking some time to record a uh, brief little segment here on the baseball team. So uh, without further ado, here's Adam's optimism uh, with the OU baseball program. OU baseball coming off their fourth straight series win. The first time the Sooners can say that since the 2010 team the one that actually went on to Omaha later that year. So OU takes care of West Virginia in Norman this past weekend, taking two out of three against the Mountaineers. 
And they did it with some impressive offensive displays there, uh, scoring 15 runs, 8 runs, and 17 runs, respectively, with the Sunday game coming in run rule fashion. And you continue to see this team really manufacturing runs. Yeah, there were a couple home runs here and there, but it's scoring on stolen bases, getting guys in scoring position, wild pitches, balks, so on and so forth, just finding ways to create offense without having a ton of guys that can really go yard with the ball. So pretty impressive series there against West Virginia, which takes you into a team in Lubbock and Texas Tech that is coming off of three straight series wins against uh, Baylor, West Virginia, and then the sweep most recently this past weekend in Stillwater against a top 10 ranked Oklahoma State team. Now I know what you're thinking. Adam, didn't OU play Wichita State on Monday night? And yes, that game was on the schedule, uh, but the team did not show up for it. Uh, so that game did not occur. Uh, actually, Kendall Pettis was the only player that was seen in Wichita. Uh, everyone else decided to stay in Norman. So that game did not take place. And so that means the next game for OU is going to be at Texas Tech on a series that will start on a Thursday night and then the getaway game coming on Saturday, a little bit earlier uh, on the schedule than normal uh, weekend series. And that's because the Big 12 tournament is right around the corner, uh, given an extra day of rest between that Saturday finale in Lubbock and the Wednesday start down in Arlington for the Big 12 tournament. As it stands right now in the Big 12 standings, the Sooners are tied for third in the Big 12 Conference at 13-8. and eight. They're tied with Oklahoma State. Man, wouldn't you like to have one of those games back uh, when the Sooners played in Stillwater earlier this year? So ahead of the Sooners, Texas Tech at 14-7, and seven, TCU at 16-8. and eight. So OU does have the possibility to sweep the Raiders and tie for first place. And I believe, if I understand the tiebreakers correctly, OU would have the tiebreaker over TCU since OU won that series. However, Texas Tech has only lost three home games all year in their home stadium, and they're surging right now. It is a team that does have a fairly high ERA, over five earned runs per game. But right now, D1 Baseball has Texas Tech ranked uh, number five in the country. They are pretty similar to where OU is ranked in the RPI, only separated by about five spots, still in the mid-30s there. So, it is a team that OU has already beaten. They beat them in Amarillo in a midweek game earlier this year, and OU will certainly have all arms available to them, moving a lot of the midweek guys uh, into the bullpen for reliever status. But it is a tall task to be able to say, hey, go out and beat a, a red-hot Texas Tech team right now. So let's take a look at some optimism uh, segments here in, in Adam's optimism and just wanted to recap a few of the key statistics that I think just show how well this team is playing right now, uh, specifically from an offensive standpoint. So OU as a team, third in the Big 12 in batting average right now, second in bases on balls, eighth nationally, uh, just a real patient team at the plate. Uh, that's led by Blake Robertson, who's uh, actually second in the conference in on-base percentage at, at 512, and then uh, first in overall uh, walks with 60. So uh, really patient at the plate there. Um, and then Eighth in fielding percentage. I think that's actually kind of a little bit of a negative sneaking into the optimism segment, but an area that certainly could be a big room for improvement there as far as just, hey, get off the field. You know, make make the simple routine plays and don't let something snowball on you there. So um, there's a lot to be really optimistic about. You've got a lot of guys contributing all up and down the lineup. It is something where I think some, and myself included, would probably rather see Skip keep a more 
a more solid rotation of who's uh, you know in the lineup and not necessarily playing for the analytics in every single scenario. Um, you know, a, an example of that would be you know, hey, Jackson Nicholas, is he going to be a good hitter against left-handers? Well, statistically and analytically, no, but. We just haven't seen that. He just haven't been given that opportunity because he basically has pulled out of the lineup every time a left-hander is there. Um, and sometimes that can be proven true. Um, look at softball, Taylor Snow. She's hitting, I think, something like 380 against right-handers and something like 184 against left-handers. So it is possible that could happen, but we just haven't been able to see that opportunity. So we'll see how Skip handles this series, and maybe he can just stick with some of the hot hands, uh, some of the guys that are, are hitting really well, Brett Squires, uh, Jackson Nicholas, and then you love uh, John Spikerman uh, in that leadoff spot uh, as of late. Just the the uh, speed that he's able to provide once he gets uh, onto that first base, it's almost a guarantee that he's going to end up at second, no matter whether the guy uh, gets a hit behind him or not. And of course, that guy is Peyton Graham, who is in top five in the Big 12 in home runs. He's got 13 on the year. He's really starting to hit a little bit of a hot streak right now. He didn't finish Monday or, or Sunday with uh, with too much um, to show there, but otherwise, he's he's really turning it on right now, and, and you love to see that. So a lot of things to be optimistic about. We'll see what the Sooners can do in Lubbock this weekend and uh, hopefully create some momentum going into the Big 12 tournament. And again, we do want to thank Adam for taking the time during his wedding week to uh, briefly t- uh, touch on and give us an update on the OU baseball squad. It was a big weekend for Skip's, bu- Skip's bunch, no doubt about it, Corbin. Uh, taking two of three from West Virginia, they outscored the Mountaineers 40-17 to over the three-game stretch and got great pitching performances from Jake Bennett on Friday and Trevin Michael on Sunday. Uh, OU is now 31-19 on the year, 13-8 in Big 12 play. They just won their fourth consecutive Big 12 series. Uh, and Corbin, I hate to say it, man, but they're currently in a tie for third in the Big 12 standings with a huge series coming up on the road uh, against Texas Tech. Tech right now is second in the Big 12, one game ahead of the Sooners. Uh, TCU, actually, they do have a series this weekend, but they've actually finished Big 12 plays. So uh, TCU sits at the top in first place, two games ahead of Oklahoma. So it's still possible that the Sooners could win the Big 12. They're just going to need to sweep Texas Tech and Lubbock over the weekend, and they need Baylor to knock off Oklahoma State just once. So you're telling me there's a chance. I mean, this is what we discussed last week on the pod. And again, I'm going to pat myself on the back just a tad. Adam was like, hey, let Oklahoma State take care of Tech, knock them out. And I was like, wait a minute. Why do we want that? Give ourselves a fighting chance heading into the last weekend. And that's exactly what this (laughs) team has done. Now, Tyler. Let's let's tap the brakes oh, here just a tad, what right? Happened? Like, what why, why do we let's not put ho- our hope in this team like we do? Because every time that we do, this program tends to let us down. So let's just enjoy what's going on. If we can take one or two from Tech, I think all any of us would take that any day of the week heading into postseason. So uh, I'm just going to level my expectations just a tad. I'm not hopping on the board of like we're going to go sweep Tech and win this conference. Yeah, well, the, let's uh, let's transition over here. Talk a little bit of men's golf. Uh, postseason play is underway right here, in Norman, out at Jimmy Austin Golf Club. Uh, OU men's golf wraps up day two of the Norman Regional. Uh, currently sitting in second place at fourteen under as a team, six shots behind the Auburn Tigers. Uh, and Oklahoma is currently six shots ahead of the third place team, the Texas Longhorns. So Oklahoma, o- Oklahoma as a team got off to a fast start collectively today, uh, going nine under on the front nine of Jimmy Austin. But once uh, once lunchtime was over, once the winds kind of picked up in the afternoon, 
Uh, the Sooners were six over as a team over the fi- final nine holes to post a minus three uh, for the second round. So good performances over the first two days, especially from freshman Drew Goodman, uh, Chris Goddard, Logan McAllister, Patrick Welch, and Stephen Campbell Jr. Uh, tomorrow's a big day. Tomorrow's the final one. Sooners will tee off tomorrow at 8 a.m. with uh, with Auburn and Texas. So uh, Oklahoma is 11 shots in front of the sixth place South Carolina squad. <clears throat> Uh, and as everybody knows, in the regional, you only have to finish in the top five as a team to advance to the NCAA championship. So following Wednesday's final round, the regional's top five teams will advance to the NCAA championships at Greyhawk Golf Club, which is scheduled to, uh, to get underway here on May 27th. So um, ultimately, Ryan Hibble t- touched on a little bit today. Wasn't super uh, happy with the way that his guys finished uh, the round out today, but he knows that we do have 18 more holes tomorrow to Uh, hopefully pick up six shots on Auburn and uh, have a regional championship. So, yeah, a lot of good things going on right now uh, with men's golf, and we'll see if we can cap it off in a big way tomorrow. Auburn's got to come back down to earth a little bit, right? Yeah, they played out of their mind today. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So Let's transition, Tyler, because I know this has been uh, some pretty significant news uh, coming out of the state of California, not involving Lincoln Riley and USC. I guess indirectly it does, but a new – California law that basically would create a rev share for um, student athletes, if you can still call them that now, in football, men's okay. basketball, and women's basketball. Um, and so really, just to kind of give, if, if you haven't read the article, if you haven't been caught up, I'm going to do my best to explain it. And I, I hopefully I'm correct on most things. There's a few things in here I think that uh, need some explaining. But basically what this, this is – trying to do is, and, and you can tip your hat, it, it's a goal to encourage a higher graduation rate for black athletes. So at the top line of what this is, it's a commendable thing, I suppose you could say. Right. And really what they've described, this is a degree of completion fund for each athlete, which would be made available after the degree completion within six years. If a student athlete doesn't finish their degree within six years, the fund is then forfeited and goes back to the athletic budget. Players would have immediate access to a maximum of 25K each year, and the rest would build over time. So basically how this works is there's an amount owed to each athlete, which would be half of the sport's total revenue minus the team's total student grant and aid package divided by the number of players. So basically you're going to split football down the middle. Okay, You've got an athletic fund side and you've got a student athlete side. The athletic fund side obviously stays within the university. The student athlete side, basically, they're going to remove all of the students' grant and age age package. So you're taking away everything that costs for their scholarship, their room and board, all of their books, uh, so on and so forth. What is remained left over in revenue from the football team will then be spread equally between the number of football players. So that was a long-winded answer, okay? okay? I have... just an enormous amount of questions of how this works. Um, Because the first thing that comes to mind is how in the hell does this comply with title nine? And really what, what, what I thought was presented interestingly about the article, but something that can never stand is the reason that these three sports in particular um, are within this bill is because the remaining sports don't meet the revenue requirements to actually have a split 50 50. The student in, um, or excuse me, the, uh, the the grant in package, all the scholarships, the the books, all of that, the cost for those other sports would, would outweigh any revenue. So there's right. nothing there for the students to get, right? So many questions. Let's start here. This doesn't work because Title IX will never let it work. 
and and I I can't imagine a place where the Title IX laws are going to allow two men's sports. One of those sports has eighty five scholarships, yes. and to only have a what twelve scholarship women's basketball team in that mix, there's just no way that that's going to come full circle. Um, but I don't know what the NCAA can do if that's just at a state level. And so I'm very confused about how that's going to work out. I think on top of this, one of my big questions is, is this going to be the end of prominent Olympic sports in the state of California? Or if it expands, however, you know, states, because the revenue that comes specifically from football is funding all of these other small sports. Correct. If you take away half of that funding, you have no money left to uh, spend towards gymnastics, towards <clears throat> Um, you know, like a water polo, I know is huge over on the West Coast, volleyball, baseball, some of these sports that can't carry their own, they have to go away. That's the only way that this can necessarily come full circle and for the dollars to make sense. And I think last, lastly, my question is, if you are paying each and every specifically football player, once they, once they graduate, if you're paying them post-graduation, do you begin putting less football players on scholarship? to eliminate some of those expenses in the long term. Do you take 75 scholarship players instead of 85? I don't know. But Tyler, what what are your kind of your your first thoughts? That was kind of a long-winded uh thought process on my end. My first thought is, you know, uh, and I guess, you know, from our time working, you know, within OU athletics, we we know the severity in which outside of football and you can you can even throw men's basketball men's basketball you know is it makes a little bit of money everything else costs money and that's why football is such a huge power you know not just from tradition and play on the field but also the amount of money that that sport brings into the university it actually act it actually carries the weight uh for the other sports that you know student athletes are involved in on that campus so yeah if you're uh if you're splitting that pot if you're cutting that right down the middle i i I'm curious to see how that impacts other sports within, you know, each, you know, each school's athletic department. So um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to see how this, my first immediate thought goes to recruiting. Why a, why a football recruit coming out of high school, why they would choose a school in California, why this would be, would be appealing to them over anywhere else, I guess. Yeah. So, so for me, they are saying, "Hey, if something ha- if you if you don't make it to the NFL, if you don't leave college early, so is it an in, insurance policy, basically? I guess in a way, it's it's an encouragement to graduate. Okay. That's that's how you view it. So you can only get this fund if you actually come through and graduate within six years. And let's be honest, six years is a gr- like a gracious amount of time to get a Absolutely. single degree. Absolutely. So this is this is basically a unless you literally drop out or you decide to go pro before you know you get your degree, this is a safe haven for any of these three sports that you are going to get paid after you're done. So they have to get their degree in order to catch the funds on the back end. And so for me, if I'm pitching a recruit, I'm saying, hey, yes, we want to make sure that you are taken care of um, and that your goals are reached and that you are going to be able to get to the NFL, the NBA, the WNBA, and you can leave early. Yeah. But if not, like, let's have you set up to be successful regardless. And right. that's, a, that's a pretty easy one. You're getting, you know, potentially tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of dollars once yeah. you graduate, um, you know, from any California school. I guess just to kind of put a bow on this for me. I like the concept of it. I think it's a really good idea. Um, I just, like you said, there are more questions now 
that this has come yeah. out, then there are answers in which this addresses it. So, well, and one thing I want to hit on before we, before we move on the the guy who is kind of spearheading this bill, he was a I believe a football player at UCLA, and his main reason for trying to push more pay for play type of models because. And granted, isn't it always the guy who like doesn't do anything in his collegiate career that comes up with these? So sidebar, but I guess a, a buddy of his, uh, you know, couldn't afford. Uh, he, he was on the UCLA football team. He couldn't afford groceries, um, so he was going hungry, and so he was gifted a bag of groceries. And the NCAA like cracked down on him and like can't do that. Yeah. He got in trouble. That's great. That's not how this works anymore. That's not today's NCAA. And we can we can go up and down the list of like how bad the NCAA is in a, in a variety of ways. But nowadays, everybody on the UCLA football team has more than enough food to handle themselves. Like this is <laughs> if you're using that as your reason to change all this, you got to update because that's no longer applicable to the the current college football Division One high level. It's it's just it's a it's a really poor excuse to try to push what they're pushing right now. Is this something that you think other states could follow suit with? How do you not like just to just to keep up? How do you not implement something else? But but where does the NCAA come in on this? I don't know. I, I guess my question is: Is this something that each state, like the you know, I guess you know, state governments have to get involved in as far as passing legislation, or is this a concept or an idea that you know, if a school chooses that they want to form, you know, what there's been so much talk about collectives, if they want to basically take this. Uh, concept and idea and apply it to their program, regardless of what anybody else is doing. Is that something that Oklahoma or Texas or say, you know, we, we really like this idea, you know, we would love for all of our scholarship athletes, you know, in all sports, uh, you know, to be involved in this, but uh, I, I, I don't there's know. There's no way there's not, there's not enough money. <sighs> just reading part of that article, just trying to wrap my mind around all the, you know, different, you know, variables and implications right. of what all this stuff can do, but no title nine, uh, money and lack of funding for other departments uh, or for other sports, I should say, uh, within the athletic department. But no, that's uh, that's some good stuff. And I'll we'll, we'll definitely um, we'll we'll table that for next week because I do kind of want to get Adam's thoughts on that as well. So, yep. um, Tyler, one of the, let's let's talk booty. Yeah, let's uh, booty call. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we Corbin, we only thought uh, that when David uh, David Bevel, uh, the pit transfer, whenever he decided to come to Oklahoma, we we only thought Oklahoma was done. Uh, in the portal with uh, with quarterbacks, but no. Over the weekend, six foot three, hundred ninety five pounds, sophomore General Booty, out of Tyler Junior College in Tyler, Texas, guy that's going to have three years of eligibility left. Uh, he committed to the Sooners over the weekend, and this is a guy that's got kind of a crazy story. Uh, once you kind of look at, at his background, you know, family pedigree. Uh, you know, he's the son of former LSU receiver Abram Booty. Uh, his uncle Josh was a quarterback at LSU. His uncle John David played quarterback at USC when Pete Carroll was there. Uh, this guy went to four different high schools uh, and ultimately finished out his high school career at Allen. So that's kind of a – that could be definitely be interesting. That's kind of a good little uh, segue, being able to get back into Allen, you know, from other recruits coming out of there. Hey, look at what this guy's doing in Oklahoma. Um, not heavily recruited out of high school, though. It chose to go the JUCO route, spend a year at TJC. Uh, and statistically speaking, he had one of the most efficient um, – uh, efficient uh, seasons in junior college, uh, especially in the state of Texas. Uh, I mean, 3,115 yards, 25 touchdowns. Uh, that was second in the country in junior college in one game against Navarro last season. Uh, he threw for just over 500 yards, eight touchdowns, and had 60 more on the ground. So um, 
We've got seven quarterbacks in the room now, so surely somebody behind Dylan Gabriel is going to emerge because uh, uh, that's a position of great need and something uh, where we need a solid number two guy. I'm not sure if if Booty – uh, is the number, number, two. number two guy? There we yeah. go. Uh, but yeah, this can't this can't hurt. This can't hurt having somebody else come in. I have two thoughts. One is he the front runner to make the most nil money at the end of next season? Like that name? Oh, he's got to be. Is going to get you so far. Secondly, I feel so ripped off as a Sooner fan that this guy wasn't enrolled and in Norman during the spring game because we probably would have seen more of him there than any point next season. And the fact that we didn't get to hear Toby Rowland and some of those guys talk about booty and oh, some yeah. of the things. Oh, it's just, it feels like we, it feels like we were wronged. Like we should have gotten that experience, and oh, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very upset about that. But no, it's it's a it's a it's an addition. Uh, who knows who's going to take the number two spot? I genuinely have no idea. There's more film on Booty than there is the uh, the Pit transfer. But yep. you know, you would think, okay, the guy from Pitt sat behind, you know, a first round NBA era NFL draft pick uh, quarterback. So it'll be very interesting to see all this how all this plays out. Does does Nick Evers take massive steps and and sit? kind of solidify himself as number two i'd be most surprised at that scenario i think of the three but uh but we're, we'll see we'll see but i know that's not the only transfer who uh is making his way to norman yeah we knew uh with all of the talent uh, that we lost both to the nfl draft and to the transfer portal we knew the wide receiver was going to position be a position where going into spring oklahoma was needing to take at least one guy and that was without even factoring in cody jackson uh, who ultimately he is still in the portal, uh, choosing between a couple different schools. So me personally, I thought that OU was going to take two, uh, but we did get our first commit last week. Uh, JV and Hester, the Missouri transfer, and the former Booker T. Washington out of Tulsa standout. Six foot three sophomore. Uh, he was a four star under 247 Sports. He was a three star under Rivals. And I think Rivals had him rated as a uh, the number five player in the state of Oklahoma for the class of 2020. But yeah, last year caught 12 passes, 225 yards, two touchdowns. The biggest thing, biggest takeaway for me in the limited highlight tape that he has put out from his time at Missouri. Uh, he's a burner with size. I mean, you're talking about six foot three in the video that he did put out. Uh, a guy that can be that size and stature, six foot three, two hundred pounds, and can run and can reach a maximum speed of twenty two miles an hour. Uh, we know what we've got in Marvin Mims. You know, Drake Stoops a nice player. Theo Weiss is is going to be a nice addition. Uh, having him back from the you know being bit by the injury bug but no i think that this is a guy where not sure how big of an impact he can be if he's going to be a starter but i think that this is a guy with proven sec experience uh that can come in and be some nice added depth yeah it'll be interesting because the the intangibles are there you look at them on on paper the size the speed it's all there but then you look at his production at missouri and there's tons of question marks about Mm -hmm. okay if he has all these intangibles where's the production um and so yeah I mean, if he can come on the scene and make a splash, obviously the the more the merrier. We've got enough, I think, of the the high end um, talent position to the wide receiver spot. I think we'll be okay. I think the biggest question we've been talking about this for weeks is the depth in the wide receiver position. And so, could this be a nice depth guy? Of course, um, but I'm gonna have to see. I think a little bit more before I'm buying into that. Well, I think he's definitely going to have an opportunity to to make plays and have an impact on this. I mean, just looking at what Jeff Levy's offenses do, you know, running 80, 90, 100 plays a day, the tempo, the fast pace of it, there's going to be a lot of rotations in this. So he's going to have his chances uh, to make plays for this team. So it's just a matter of, you know, getting him on campus, uh, getting him acclimated within this team, getting him uh, brought up to speed on the system in which Jeff Levy runs and, you know, getting him ready to go, forming that relationship with Dylan Gabriel, 
um, it's uh, it's a nice pickup, and uh, you know Oklahoma needed him, and we got a good one from Missouri. So, Corbin, have you got anything else you want to touch on before we get out of here? Nothing else. It's cool. a slow time, but right, it's going to stride around the corner. Start feel yeah. the weather's warming up. It's yep. uh, the football season will be here before we know it. Absolutely. Well, again, we uh, appreciate you guys for joining us as always, Tyler Corbin um, and uh, Adam. Good luck at the wedding this weekend. Uh, praying for you. Uh, but yeah, if you've made it this far in the podcast, uh, follow us on Twitter at the Mainline Pod, uh, and as always, uh, follow us on all of your various uh, you know podcast platforms: Apple, Spotify. Uh, give us a five star review, like, and subscribe. And again, Tyler, Corbin, Adam, we appreciate you guys for joining us. And we will be back next week with a brand new episode of the Mainline Podcast. <laughs>